Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 92, an honest look at security, recorded April 27th, 2013, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementopie.com. There's all kinds of stuff out there about what you need to do and what you don't need to do in terms of security, and we're just going to have a real honest look at that and say, how much of this is real and how much of it is garbage? And um, you'd be surprised. And, and there's a lot of opinions. Garbage. So, wow, that stellar tone right there came to you courtesy of the gooey kid, Mr. Seth Anderson. Hi, Seth. How's it going? Hey, Mark. Doing pretty good. Got my Saturday juices flowing. <laughs> I would say so. I tanked up on some of my super strong coffee before we go is, is becoming the uh, the thing I do before the show. So I'm all amped up and ready to go. One of these days, my heart is just going to blow up from a caffeine <laughs> overdose, but I'm enjoying it. And and also, to the other side of the GUI is the command line, Mr. Command Line Godfather, Chris Neves. Hey, Chris. Hey, guys. How goes it today? Obviously, other than the juices flowing and the heartbeats are bumping. <laughs> Life is grand. This is a rare Saturday recording for us. We typically do this on Sunday, uh, but this week uh, Seth had a, a conflict on Sunday, so we're doing it on Saturday. Uh, I kind of like doing it on Saturday, uh, but it did mess up the fact I, my wife and I were were had plans that we had made because I forgot we were recording on Saturday. It was on the calendar. It was there. You know, it's entirely my fault. But we don't ever record on because I try to keep Friday night and Saturday night for my family. So right. we had plans. We were going to go uh, out to dinner in a movie. And uh, and then I was reminded this morning by a listener in the chat room, actually, who said, hey, what time are you going to record tonight? And I said, we record on Sunday nights. Well, according to the calendar, it's tonight. Uh-oh. Turns out it is tonight. Um, <laughs> Whoops. And then oh, no. moments later, the babysitter called in sick anyway, so it didn't matter. So it all worked oh. out. Saved, yeah, saved a, by the babysitter. Right. Thank you, babysitter. I really appreciate that. Yeah, your love life is okay, is going to be okay now, Mark. <laughs> so you know when you've got uh, three kids, you it's easy to find a sitter for a kid. Uh, that sitters for a kid are everywhere. You can you can slip that into another family with ha having kids, and they don't really even notice. But when you've got three kids, it's hard to find a sitter. The last time my wife and I had a date was in December. So uh, we're it's it's not an easy thing for us to do. So we had this all planned out, um, and then the babysitter got sick, which saved me from being in trouble because otherwise I would have been here. And she well, you know, been what the, mad at me. The, the funny thing though, Mark, is I have it on. You know, obviously it's, it's on our calendar, and my wife gets that calendar too, and she still tried to plan something for tonight. Yeah. So it was like, um, honey, it's been on the calendar for a week. What are you doing? But. But I didn't see it. It's like, well, that's not my fault. You yell at me when I don't pay attention to the ca the calendar. Now I get to do it to you. <laughs> and then she slapped my hand and said, "No more cookies." Yeah, she said, "Remember that taekwondo I was tournament I was at." <laughs> I hope your couch is comfortable, Chris. Oh no, she just she just threatens to take away the cookies and the cheesecake, and that's enough to keep <laughs> that me. That does it, huh? Oh yeah, with that with the, that yummy food. Oh, oh boy. So Seth has an amazing announcement. Before he says what it is, I'm just going to say I'm super proud of you, buddy. Tell everybody what you did today. Well, I decided to run a 5K a month early. Well, I guess it's like three weeks early. And I was supposed to do it with some friends from church, but they all 
chickened out. You know, one of them claimed to be sick and the other one said it would be too expensive. So, so the fat guy with no job showed up and ran it by himself. Uh, well, just no friends around, but I ran 5k and I finished it in 37 minutes and 55 seconds. I was like the last of the runners, you know, but well ahead of all the run walkers. And, uh, so, you know, but as far as 300 plus pound guys, I was far away ahead of the pack. So I was proud of myself. I, I got it done and, uh, you know, I didn't collapse. And when I got near the finish line, I, I picked up the pace some and I ran through the finish line. I only had to stop a couple of times, a few steps here and there. And like one time the cup I used for water fell out of my pocket. So I didn't want to leave it on the street. So I had to stop, go back a couple of steps, pick it up. And, but so I'm quite proud of myself. Less than 38 minutes for the first time, considering two months ago, I couldn't run for five minutes. So you ran uh, the whole way. You didn't start take any walk breaks. Uh, if you totaled up my walk breaks, it would be less than one minute. That's awesome. That's awesome. That is awesome, Seth. Congratulations. I will give you a golf clap. And everything on that one. That is awesome. I have yet to do my first 5K, so that's awesome. Uh, one of these days, I think I'll maybe get a chance to do one, but it's going to be a long time from now. I'm working up to doing what's called the Warriors Dash in Colorado. And uh-huh. that's the one where if you finish, and if you finish with all the runners, you get a Viking helmet, a leg of lamb, and a glass of mead from cr- wow. when you cross the finish line. So I was like, you know... That's what I'm going to work up to. It's 5K for the distance, but it's more than just running. It's climbing, uh, running through horrible, horrible things. Uh, I think you have to go underneath some barbed wire fencing. Yeah, it's it's a wicked looking run, but me and my little brother are going to do it at the same time, so it should be a great blast. Aaron cool, did the, yeah. the, uh, the Tough Mudder, and there's another one that's called a Warrior Dash. I think the Tough Mudder's 10K and the Warrior Dash is 5K. Some, I don't remember exactly what it was, but he said at one point on the course, there was a sign-up that said, if you'd done the Warrior Dash, you'd be finishing now. <laughs> <laughs> you were going to say that's, something, Seth? I was going to say, I want to do things like that, um, but you know, I figure I need to get a couple of more 5Ks under my belt first, just the just the plain old running, uh, you know, well, fat man running, slow jogging for everybody else. Yeah. But, uh, you know, oh, get yeah. a couple of those under my belt. And, like, I think maybe I can do the one in a month in under 35 minutes. So that's my goal. If I can shave, you know, almost three minutes off my time. And, uh, and I got about three weeks. I, I, I think that would be a really, I think that would be cool. I think it's to, reachable. You know, yeah. Goal. I think so. I think you're, you're perfectly fine, Seth. Yeah, so anybody who is watching on the live stream, which I don't know, there's my little thing. I put my number and my time on there and my date and everything. So, yay. And I'm wearing my medal, which you can't see because of my mic stand, but it isn't. Oh, and the cool thing is I was a late registration guy, so I didn't get a T-shirt and I didn't get a medal. And when I told it to this uh, couple that, you know, we just the guy took off his medal and gave it to me. And I, I did. I was just so thankful. I didn't even think to ask his name. So... You know, whoever you are, thank you very much. You don't know what that means to me. So, some random stranger, thank you. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> that's great because this, you know, this is your first time. That's something you're going to treasure, and 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 hopefully it'll be the first of many. Yes. All right. Yeah, because I, I got a job. Uh, I start Monday, so uh, I will. Uh, I'll have money to do that. So just an update on some conversations we've had over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Seth put out a plea saying, if you know how to create an iTunes account without a credit card, 
let him know. I had a couple of people send me uh, information on how to do that, uh, and so I, I tested it and just wanted to let you know um, uh, the results that I found out. So if you, you load the iTunes software, which only runs on Windows or a Mac, so if you're a Linux user, you got to at least have a, a Windows VM to make this happen. Load the iTunes software, um, go to the uh, apps section in iTunes, um, and pick any of the apps, the, the free apps, and click the install button. When you do that, it'll ask you to log on with your iTunes uh, ID, um, uh, and if you don't have one, there's a button to create one. So you click the create button, it'll take you to a page where you create a username and password, then it'll take you to a payment option page, and it lists your credit cards, PayPal, all that, but there is a button for none. You can click that, and you can create it. I did it today. I created an account without um, had adding any payment sources. So you can do that, then you can um, comment and rate on our show. That was the whole point uh, of doing that. We also had... Um, a listener uh, sent in a, an update that said, I think you can create an iTunes account with an iTunes gift card uh, without having to use any info. Uh, he said that's how he did one for his, uh, his daughter's iPod, and you may even be able to use the free Starbucks uh, card. So that was a, a listener named Chris who wrote that in. So there's two options for you, uh, one that I've tested and one that Chris, um, whose last name I didn't write in the show notes, has done. So there you go. Yeah, I don't know if it was just my awesomely crappy internet at home, but it, I never got the none option. Whenever I went to download, it asked me for a payment type, and it could, like it could just be the connection timed out, but I never saw none. So, so I'm glad it works, and if I'm ever somewhere with a computer with iTunes on it with sufficient bandwidth, I will give it another shot. Right. Sure. And uh, then I had uh, one other thing. Uh, you, people on this show uh, have uh, heard me whine about Comcast in the past um, for a number of reasons. They suck. All internet companies suck. <laughs> Let's just, just, just stipulate that. But they finally, they, they'd had enough. I mean, I'd had enough. I couldn't take it anymore. I canceled my Comcast account yesterday. Uh, fortunately, I did it on a Friday night. And we were recording <laughs> on a Saturday, so they haven't actually gotten around to cutting me off yet. So uh, that is to say that in the the next time we do a show, I will be on AT and T's Uverse. We'll see if it's any better or any worse. Um, Good frankly, luck. frankly, I can't I can't think it would be it can't be better, um, and hopefully it won't be worse. But um, Comcast was misbilling me for the last ten months, not ten months. I haven't been in Georgia for ten months. Last eight months. And I have called them every month for the last eight months, and they've promised me they would correct it, and they never did. So finally, I just said, I'm done. Cancel my account. I'm done. Um, then they sent me to the billing person who corrected my account. So that's what you got to do. To get good service out of Comcast, you have to cancel your Comcast account. Go See, figure. and yeah, now that you've canceled, you can get all kinds of rebates to be a returning customer. So, you know, they'll do anything. <laughs> they'll do anything to get you back, but they just don't care. So, you know, you get all kind load up on freebies because once they got you, they don't care anymore. Yeah. So, where where I live, there's only two providers, Comcast and, and AT&T. And frankly, that's unusual. Most places only have one. The fact that I have two to choose from is unusual. So, when I was talking to AT&T today, uh they were reading me the fine point print you know it may cost you this may have to do this and, and i said look 
there's only two choices. The other one screwed me over. I fully expect you to screw me over. Just say yes, I agree to whatever you're about to say, because I want the bandwidth. And the, the person <laughs> on the phone didn't quite know how to handle that, that level of honesty. <laughs> well, <laughs> Mark, you and Seth and me are a dying breed, I think. Most people just roll over and take things anymore. <laughs> and uh, I spent three months getting my CenturyLink bill figured out and fixed because they were trying to charge me for stuff I didn't want or need or the outage of internet for three weeks, I think it was. Yeah. I, I had a feeling that by the time they finished uh, dealing with me that last time, they, they were more than happy to fix whatever I needed fixed. <laughs> <laughs> well, they kept charging me. I'll, I'll go ahead and say what it is. They, they kept charging me for TV. I don't have TV. I have internet. And they kept sending me a bill every month for TV. And then one month they sent me a receiver uh, that I that came with a, inside the box a UPS return label, which I promptly, the only reason I opened the box was to get the return label out and put it back in the box and send it back to them. Then a couple months later they sent me another one that I never asked where they were, but I guess they figured we're charging you for it. We might as well give you the receiver. Right. Uh, and I sent that one back. And I and I did the UPS, you know, uh, show me when it was um, not uh, received thing, and I have you know confirmation of receipt. Then they said the next bill had like a five hundred dollar charge on it for equipment not received. Uh, okay, okay, wait a minute. First off, I never asked for it. You sent it to me. I sent it back. I have the thing with the guy's the scanned image of the guy's signature on it, and you're telling me you didn't get it back. And so it took a month to figure that out, and I didn't pay the five hundred. I just paid them what I owed minus, you know, their bill minus that five hundred. That's what I was sending them every month. So right. it took a couple of months to get that figured out. Finally, they took that off my bill. So then last night when I go to cancel, the person says, "All right, we'll just need to handle this issue of the uh, unreturned DV, DVD uh, DVR, and uh, then we'll set up your account." What? Wait a minute. We already covered this. No, it shows wow. here that you have outstanding equipment. I said, I'm just done. This is, And so then they sent me to ask me and when I hung up, would you like to take a survey? Yes. Yes, as a matter <laughs> of fact, I would like to take a survey. And so Please the automated system called me, me back and uh, said, uh, did they resolve your issue, yes or no? Well, yes. Eventually they did. They canceled the account. Um, were they able to do it in one call? Yes or no? No. Then the then it was sent me to a voicemail box. Why weren't they able to uh, uh, to resolve it in one call? That's and when you I opened. That's when both I opened barrels. both barrels on them and said, "Okay, here you go. Uh, eight months of systemic incompetency is the reason why." Um, <laughs> and and even though you finally got it right, I just can't keep giving you my money. I can't, in good conscience, continue giving money to a company that is that poorly run. Now, uh, I happen to, my light just went off. Um, I, uh, <laughs> it's dark in here. I'm scared. Um, oh, no. It was, you actually were dealing with the power company, yeah. not the cable company. <laughs> it, well, before the show started, one of my two lights burned out, and the other one is on a motion sensor, and apparently I'm going to have to move more. Otherwise, I'm going to be sitting in complete darkness. Anyway, that's enough of my whining. Um, it's just, it's hard to deal with incompetency. Uh, and I know that there's at least one, um, avid supporter of the the element op network who works for comcast and pete i'm sorry but your company sucks that's all i have to say about that i love you pete personally we're good yeah i love you like a brother but your company sucks okay 
<laughs> that's all I'm gonna. That's all the whining I'm gonna do tonight about that. Tonight anyway. about really? that about that oh, issue okay. about that. Oh, so. oh, oh. <laughs> there, trust me, there will be whining. I mean, come okay, on. as as long as there's gonna be whining. Do I need to go get the beer to handle this all this whining? <laughs> some cheese, some cheese to go with the wine. Just, oh, oh, just okay. another aside. Since we're in the aside section. Uh, I was having a, a conversation in the uh, one of the podcasting communities on Google Plus, and somebody posted something about you know, uh, do you allow do you do personal information about yourself on the show, or is it uh, something like non non scheduled content, something like that? I don't remember the exact phrase. And there were a couple of people who chimed in and was like, no, it's it's just the facts, only the facts, Joe Friday. Nothing personal, and in fact, I unsubscribe immediately to any podcast where where the hosts uh, go off topic. And I chimed in and said, well, then you're never going to listen to any of my shows. Because as I've said so many times before, there's no information here that we can give you that you can't get faster and probably more accurately in a Google search. The only thing we have to offer you is us. Right. So that this is Our what you smiling. get. Our smiling faces. Oh, wait, you don't see us. Uh <laughs> Our happy dulcet tones, maybe. <laughs> so anyway, I just it's it's interesting. It's been interesting to to be a part of that community. There's hundreds of people on it, all of which have a, a podcast that they think is the greatest ever, which isn't possible because mine is the greatest ever, right? Um, and uh, they, there's so so many amazingly different uh, points of view, and and they're all wrong. It just it blows me away that so many people can be so wrong. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. A little. Sure. But not really. Sure you are. <laughs> so we have an abbreviated news section tonight because we have quite a lot of listener feedback. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Keep that up. Uh, but we'll begin with a public service announcement. Uh, don't pay to root your phone. That's the, the really short version of this article. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and of course, you know, the same thing is true of so many different apps, but there's a website and uh, root-android.org, and they claim that if you give them $30, they give you software that can automatically root any Android tablet, phone, computer, or e-reader on the market today, regardless of what Android you are running. Um, and that's just blatantly false. And yeah. the other thing is, you know... Uh, because the rooting community is one that is born out of passion, the the passion of owning the products and wanting to get the most use out of them. So most all of that stuff is available for free. You just have to put in the time to uh, read up and look how to do it. So anyway, if you're going to read your phone, don't go to some website and buy a guide on how to do it. You know, pay pay your 10 year old neighbor five bucks to do it for you. That's fine. But just, you know, don't go to a website and buy a guide or software that will do it because the software won't do that, but it will probably do other stuff to your computer. Um, little disclaimer there, rooting your phone is unsupported on every phone ever made. So what just know that when you do that, you're, 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 if you, you, there, you run a chance of bricking your phone. And if you do, yes. The person who sold you your phone, be it a phone company or an electronic store, will laugh at you and say, I'm sorry you did such a stupid thing. Would you like to buy another phone? Yeah, Having right, said that, yes. I've rooted every phone, every Android phone I've owned. Uh, lots of people do it, but just want to get that out there. It's, it is an unsupported thing for everybody. And it may technically or may not be illegal on certain devices, especially if you bought them subsidized. So that's just another thing to be aware. Um, it, do it at your own risk. You know, like with any software thing, 
you know, you it, anytime you're doing something to your computer, you run the risk of really hosing it. Right. Um, and and I mean that's true even when something as mundane as updating the operating system, and that's happened to Windows, Apple, Linux. You know, there's been system updates that have screwed your system over, and that's true of of software, security software, and other software as well. So anytime you do something, you run the risk of uh you know ruining your phone or any other device. Yeah, for that matter, installing a Windows service pack can host right. your computer. So it's just uh, standard disclaimers all around. Or right. even a hot fix, because there, there yeah. was a hot fix that was released not too long ago. Yeah, just the same thing. So uh, because we love numbers so much, global Android tablet shipments up 177%. Oh, is that even possible? <laughs> but it's nothing compared to the infinite upgrade of the <laughs> windows market share um yeah so the first quarter of 2013 numbers are in and android is up to 17.6 million units which is 177 percent growth and they captured a 43 percent market share now apple is still the big dog they have 48 percent but their dominance they're not dominating anymore they're just the largest market share in the thing and windows is really because they went they had the minuscule less than one percent those tablets that never worked right because windows is not a tablet os to they're up to seven and a half percent of the market share with some three million windows and that's a combination of both windows 8 and rt so um android is you know, probably with their growth. And the thing is, Apple lost market share, but they increased, uh, they increased their number of shipments. So, um, they're probably by this time next year, Android will be shipping more. And I would say in less than two years, they will be the largest tablet, uh, and install user base. Now, I don't claim yeah. to be a mathematician, but, uh, 43 and 48. Uh-huh. is 91%. Right. Microsoft has 7.5 of the rest. So that leaves 1.5% for the Android Playbook and WebOS and maybe a few Symbian. What well, I don't know what else out there. The, the, what is that? Uh, there's an Ubuntu tablet OS. So yep, there's, there's the tiny, tablet. tiny little numbers out there of those. The RIM Playbook. Come on. Yeah. That was going to change the industry. Yes. So, yeah, that's, you know... Like I say, Microsoft, they, I was shocked that their thing was 8%. I mean, um, they've just now started coming out with some look at the things you can do on the tablets other than click them together and dance yeah. on your head on the table. Um, but, um, I was shocked that they were up to 8% because I've never seen somebody with one. Well, see, they're um, kind of, the way I see it, they're fudging the numbers, right? They're, uh-huh. they're saying that uh, PC sales are down. And part right. of the reason that they're doing that is because a PC has to have a keyboard. And they're right. saying that tablet sales are up. And the reason for that is that their PCs don't have keyboards. So there's this one device that right. they're calling both a PC and a tablet, depending on how the numbers suit them. Well, yeah. no, the the actual Microsoft tablets, those aren't counted in the, in the computer numbers, which that is part of the reason, but that's nowhere near because there's still a lot of Windows 8 mach- laptops and desktops going out. Um, but yeah, I was just surprised that their percentage of the tablet thing was this big. Um, 
but well it's yeah. because it clicks seth right I, mean, I know it's all about the clicking yeah if it didn't click they they would never nobody would buy it but it clicks therefore you must go out and buy it hold on i'll be right back <laughs> <laughs> It's like if you're a hipster, you have to buy this because it clicks. And yeah, uh, I, I'm only going to get it so I can like dance on the table right. and stuff. You know that that's <laughs> why I'm buying one because apparently that comes with it. Um, the newest ad I saw today, um, the big feature was it has an on-screen keyboard. So you know you click right because it's got the physical right. keyboard, but then they unclicked it and showed an on-screen keyboard, which is totally revolutionary. Nobody has had an on-screen keyboard before. That's that's groundbreaking. What what is an on-screen keyboard? And I mean, do, is there does the keyboard like fit on top of the screen? Is that what happens? <laughs> Actually, they do sell one of those. They the type cover that does exactly that. Uh, but no, this was the the fact that the, um, a, a software keyboard appears on the glass and you can tap keys. It was it's really it's revolutionary. You ought to check it out. Oh Man, my god, I'm, really, dude? Oh, I, I'll have to. I'm gonna look into that. I'm sold now. I think next they're going to come out with a gesture-based uh, system that they're going to call um, street art or something like that, and it'll be it'll be awesome. Wow. That, uh, you're blowing my mind, literally. <laughs> um, and those of you who are all up in arms about the latest U.S. government op- uh, attempt to snoop on everything they can, the Senate says that CISPA is dead. If you haven't heard about CISPA, it's just because nobody made as big a deal about it as they did SOPA and PIPA. But it's essentially the same law, um, Cyber Information Sharing and Protection Act, or CISPA, passed the House fairly resoundingly. Uh, but the Senate says, you know what, we're just not even going to look it up. We're not, we're not going to vote on it, but we don't care. Yeah, and uh, Obama had promised to veto it uh, in its current form. And, you know, I was thinking about this. I'm glad that this particular version failed. But, you know, if you look at software versions, um, think of the first one was kind of like an alpha. And maybe this is kind of beta. The law, it's getting better, but it's still not where it needs to be. So, you know, think of it in terms of software development. That first thing was an alpha that just would have hosed you had you used it. This is a beta. It, it's better. You can see some of the features taking shape. And, you know, in a, in a couple of more reiterations, they'll have something that, um, you know, it'll take them a little while to screw up. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and my thinking of the, and it's not just the U.S. government. Obviously, I'm an American. Right. So that's what I think about. But when governments start passing laws about technology, it's always a bad thing because nobody in government understands technology. So they have to go out and get an expert. There's no such thing as an unbiased expert. Every expert brings its own bias. You know, say they say they contacted Stallman to be their expert. Clearly, there's a bias there, right? Right. So, um, or they can get contact somebody from Microsoft or Facebook. You got to go to the the business world to find an expert because that's how people become experts is building a business. And then you get somebody with a bias who's going to write a law that that benefits them, and and. Uh, at the very least, doesn't benefit their competitors or maybe hurts their competitors. And I don't think anybody actually in there in the whole process cares whether it benefits the citizens. That's that's the problem. Nobody cares. Like For example, the, the current hacking rules laws in the U.S. that were written in the 80s, you do basically the equivalent, the digital equivalent of breaking a window and spray painting some graffiti on a wall, which is like, you know, if you hack somebody's Facebook account, and and change you know their wall 
posts. That's essentially the same thing. Well, if you break a window and spray paint some graffiti, odds are you'll get a fine and your parents will have a stern talking to you. It's a misdemeanor. Right, right. You do the virtual, the digital ver- version of that, you will be in prison for 50 years. Yeah, it's a class A felony, the same thing as murdering somebody. So the the problem is these laws are written by people who don't get it. So SOPA and PIPA were terrible laws. Good ideas, good intentions, terrible laws. CISPA is yes. a little less terrible, uh, but it's still the basic idea was uh, the government can request access to all information without warrants. What, who needs those pesky warrants? Um, and if you're a law enforcement uh, official, you want that, right? The, the easier it is to get information, the easier it is to catch bad guys. We all want bad guys to be caught. Right. But we got to find a better a way to guy. do it. Yeah, because right now it's it's pretty much if they want to look at Joe Schmo's network and anything that they've done forever, as long as they've been holding logs, they have the ability to without a warrant, and that's that's not fair. There has it's been not. some some chatter. Nobody's actually uh, posed this legislation yet, but there's been some chatter about making it a requirement that anybody who sells a secure product hard code in a government backdoor. So that they and that scares yeah. the crap out of me. Um, and again, for law enforcement purposes, right? And and you, the the reasons are all noble, right? It's it's all about stopping kitty porn. Uh, but it, it's for the know, children, Mark. The children. You are obviously a communist Al Qaeda member <laughs> to be even saying that it's not. So thank you. They're going to shut down our podcast, and we're never going to be able to talk again. Yeah, and he'll never we see Mark children. again. He'll get yeah, black yeah. bagged and take it off to some other <laughs> camp <laughs> with a hood on my head. Yeah, the 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 upshot here is this law is going to pass eventually in some incarnation. It's going yeah. to happen, um, and we can't raise the same kind of internet ire that we did over SOPA every time this comes up. That's why you know most of the the internet at large didn't even know about CISPA. Because you, you can't you can't invest that kind of mental energy every time. And so when it does pass, it's going to be an afterthought that probably not even yours truly will have heard about. It won't even make the papers. Right. But that's the scariest part. That's that's when it gets to be the scary thing because when when this if when and if this passes, what's the law going to have in it? You know, because if it doesn't make the papers and no one's caring, you know, that's that's when scary things can happen from the government. It's going to have our best interests at heart, Chris, because the government is there to protect us and they would <laughs> never do anything to cause us harm or ire. So uh-huh. <laughs> you this, can't even say that with a straight face. That's the funny part. <laughs> you know, we are not the best people we have. The, you got two Texans and a Montanan, you know, the, 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 some of the most rebellious states in the country, uh, who, whose national motto or state motto is something like, yeah, try that buddy. I think that's actually the national motto of Montana, isn't it? Sometimes, yeah. uh, especially if it comes to, uh, our guns and our gun yeah. and the rights to bear arms. I know people that have a small militia worth of arms in their house. Are you going to be smart enough? Would you be dumb enough to go try and take those arms away? 
Well, the ATF would be. Anyway, moving on along before we go too far down that road. Uh, anybody want to bet on who's going to win the latest database races? Um, Oracle says you should bet on them. My money's not on Oracle. Yeah, because they've done a good job of uh, killing MySQL. And actually, it's kind of cool. The... Uh, the core original development team of MySQL, you know, part of them left right about the time Oracle bought Sun to form uh, Maria DB with a fork. And then now the others have uh, left and um, have uh, started Sky SQL, which is a support company for both MySQL and Maria DB. And now Maria and Sky are merging. So, you know, kind of like a, it's not they're getting the band back together. They got the band back together. So maybe we'll have some uh, kick-in sequel stuff coming out in the real near future. Because, I mean, Oracle, you know, they are very closed. This is our software. You don't touch it. We'll tell you when it's fixed. And we'll tell you what the features are kind of people. Very much against open source. I mean... They just seem to be anti open source, uh, you know, to make they, they make Microsoft look like Richard Stallman <laughs> is uh, it's kind of how good they are in the open source camp. Uh, anyway, so anyway, yeah, it looks like maybe, you know, a lot we talked about it's been several months ago that a lot of the distros were moving to Maria has their um, has their um, default distro. So it looks like maybe um, Sky sql might become the darling of the open source community yeah one of the issues people are moving away from mysql is not for you know um philosophical reasons but just because it doesn't scale that type of relational right. database falls apart when you get to millions of entries and and you're you know you try try different things like cassandra was the darling for a while cassandra db and and uh mongodb is another there's there's different ones out yeah. there that have tried to handle that problem uh, while some have had you know more success than others, nobody has cracked that nut of having a relational database that can handle a billion entries. Um, you know, and, and that's what places like Facebook and Google Plus, that's what they're facing right now is that billions of entries. And you know, I don't know how they're going to do it. I hope that the SkyDB guys they end up figuring it out because if as long as they figure it out before Oracle does, and it's open sourced then uh, we don't have to worry about any patent lawsuits coming around. But if Oracle does it first, then open source is going to have a little bit harder time at it. Yeah, and that's one of the things is they've already got um, a lot of, uh, like Maria is already a lot faster than MySQL is on a lot of stuff because Wikipedia has kind of switched over to them. So there, there, there's hope on the SQL front. And of course, some people would say that who cares a sequel but anyway i just it's news and i wanted to share it doggone <laughs> it and while we're bashing oracle let's talk about java now uh, to be we, fair really oracle didn't write java oracle right. inherited the albatross that is java uh yeah go ahead yeah. Seth. i was just gonna say yes yeah, sun was lucky uh, Java was hugely popular and everybody wanted to have it and it was coming out with new features and so Sun kept throwing new features on there and they never addressed the underlying 
uh, coding issues, and then they kind of got out before everything started hitting the fan. And so Oracle's closed-minded approach of not not engaging the community for help, doing everything internally, uh, and just simply fixing flaws is only going to exacerbate the problem. But, you know, they're, they're kind of to blame because it's going to be an issue for a long time, but they're not to blame that we have the issue in the first place. Well, and to be fair, Java was never written to be exposed to the internet. It's designed to be a runtime operating system that right. you that like for example Libra uh, Open Office incorporated a lot of Java. Uh, Minecraft is a Java app. There's lots of programs that can access the internet and run Java, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But it's when you're running Java over the internet that you run into issues. When you're hooking into a browser, um, and it's really sort of hooking into is not even the right road. It's it, you're bolting on. You're you're taking a giant Cummins diesel and bolting it into a VW Bug, and <laughs> being surprised when it's not a smooth process. Yeah, yeah. That that's one way, one way to word it. I like with the uh, the the top. I guess that's not the. the I'm trying to think of what that's called, but it's the uh, it's not the title of the post, but it's the one right underneath it. The catchphrase. Oracle's whack-a-mole. That's about right. Because <laughs> that's what they're playing. You know, that's why all these bugs are being found. And they're just, it's, it's. I don't know. I, I wish we could live in a world without Java over internet. But at this point in time, it's not going to happen. And and also, hackers have turned their attention to Java. Because Windows is finally pretty secure. Uh, PDFs are finally pretty secure. Flash, believe it or not, is finally pretty secure. So Java is the low-hanging fruit, and that's where everybody's looking. Well, and it's not so much, and there's just, there's so many doors that, you know, what they, what has happened, and this is way oversimplifying, it's probably wrong, but they go through and, and they weave through all of these open doors a thing, and then they just kind of bust open a hole in Java, and then everything comes in, and, and you're totally compromised. And so Oracle goes through, and they close some of those doors and kind of temporarily patch it, but there's so many other open doors that they just say, okay, you close that one, we're going to go in that one. And it right. is a big, big business. Um, you know, cybercrime is a huge business because for a little bit of work, you can, you know... You can do something thousands of miles away, and uh, yay, Internet. If at all possible, just disconnect your browser from Java. It's okay to have Java. Just don't have the plug-in in your browser. Right. you absolutely know you need it. Well, that's where programs like NoScript come into play. Right. Um, that's And if, if you want to see how broken the Internet is, install NoScript and tell it to block uh, every form of Java. Nothing works. Yeah, it's it's so horrible that we rely on this Swiss cheese program to to live anymore. Um, I mean, my website elementop.com doesn't work with NoScript because it's got a Flash player, and Flash is instigated by JavaScript. Um, yep. So you know, it's not. It'll, the- it'll be interesting to see what happens when HTML5 takes hold, because a lot of those issues that Java is being used for is alleviated by HTML5. Yes, HTML5 is going to save the world and make babies live longer and smell better and never bathe. And map the human genome backwards. Yeah, and you know, and <laughs> JavaScript is different from Java. Exactly. So that's that's something that, you know, the the common person hears JavaScript and think, "Oh, well that's the same thing as right. Java." It's not. 
HTML5 is JavaScript. So when you're when we say Java, uh, HTML5 is going to save us from Java. You know, that's just keep that in mind. JavaScript is heavily used in the HTML5 script. Right. Well, I, that's what I that's what I was trying right. to alleviate to is that the fact that you know, yeah, it's it's not we're not plugging into things. It's in it's internally there. Right. Right. All right, so moving on to the listener feedback, we've got some great, uh, a lot of stuff. You guys have really stepped up the uh, questions and comments, and we appreciate it. Uh, keep them coming, guys. And uh, first off, we got a little bit of a kudo from Michael. Michael says, I've just found your podcast, Everyday Linux, in case I didn't remember, know which one, and it's the best Linux podcast out there. His words. He says, I'm a newbie, and I've gotten more out of this podcast than anywhere else. On a side note... I'm a fourth Dan in Taekwondo, and I teach my students that just do anything in a fight to win. Something we were talking about last week. Just wanted to let you know how great you are and keep up the good work. Thank you, Michael. That's awesome. Thanks. I don't know what fourth Dan means, but I assume it's good. That's the, you know, there's, when you first get your black belt, that's first Dan. Okay. And so he's the fourth level of black belt. Okay. So and depending he's- on what system he's in, um, like if he was in the World Taekwondo Federation, like I am, that's considered a master instructor. Then, that's so a, he's black master. belt, black suspenders, black cufflink, and black cummerbund. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Okay. He, he, uh, yeah, he's got the whole black outfit. <laughs> <laughs> and Christopher writes in and asks a question about updating Linux installs. He says, "I have a question or show topic." for EDL. I'm running a dual boot Windows 8. I'm sorry about that. Uh, Ubuntu 12.10. Uh, sorry and I'm a that. very basic Linux user and I've been trying to make the transition over to Linux. I played with Ubuntu in the past and liked GNOME 2, as you should. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Unity, as you shouldn't be. As you should be. Uh, so <laughs> now I'm looking to install the Ubuntu GNOME 13.04 to replace my current Ubuntu install. Yes, we're all for that. Yes. Uh, I'd rather not nuke the whole hard drive and reinstall. I'm going to play with a live CD first, but eventually I'm going to pull the trigger and make Unity go away. And there was Which much you rejoicing. Should. It may be <laughs> Ubuntu GNOME or something like Mint. Ultimately, what I'm asking is, can I install a different version of Linux on top of my old install while retaining my files? I'm not sure what partitions my hard drive has on it. They're whatever the defaults for a typical Ubuntu install. Thanks for the help and keep up the good work. Love the show. Short answer, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's a short answer. Yes, you can do that. Uh, does I don't remember from the last time I installed Ubuntu, but is that... They're still using separate home partition, aren't they? No. The default installer does not use a home partition. Uh, so uh, I would encourage you to take this opportunity to do that, to learn a little bit about repartitioning your drives. Uh, however, because of the way it's set up now, it will wipe out your data. There's no way to non-destructively repartition your disk. So, uh, however, the answer to your question, Linux is very good, has been for many, many years about non-destructive upgrades. Uh, it uh, it will, in fact, it'll sacrifice full functioning uh, in order to keep things functioning. So you may get some older libraries, and you may not get the full benefit of the upgrade uh, because it's super uh, careful about not wiping out anything. And yeah, it will take that. longer to upgrade than it would to do a fresh install and reset everything up because they, they are so conscious about not not screwing you over 
that it takes forever. Yeah, I would say, in my personal opinion, what I would do is blow your um, your current Ubuntu petition away, and then repartition that space to have a separate home. And then, because you, if you're dual booting, you should have a partition for your Windows side and then a partition for your Ubuntu yeah. side. So you should be able to blow the old Ubuntu partition away, repartition that so it's Ubuntu or whatever distro's root file, and then have another partition set up so it's the slash home file. Um, you can use, I don't know if you can use the partitioner built into Ubuntu to do this. You can. I, I didn't know if, they, if they've changed that or not because I know Fedora has and it makes a pain to repartition outside of their defaults. Um, you just have to go yeah, into the advanced option. But, but yep. you know, uh, Christopher said he's not an advanced user. So I was kind of wanted to stay away from that. We're encouraging you the best thing to do is to back up, reformat, repartition, um, and do it right the first time. But you'll get along just fine if you don't. Right. The other thing you could do is download VirtualBox and play with the partitioning system to see if you can figure it out on your own before you blow anything away. That's a good idea. Because then you can play with the partitioning, you know, and you can monkey with that a whole uh, until you're comfortable dealing with leaving a partition or resizing a partition and then do it on your hardware. But make sure when you go to do it the final time, you know, you're you have backups upon backups at least two backups, I would say at least in two different drives. I would have not internal drives, make them external and unplug them when you're done just to keep your your data safe. Because if you're like me with wedding photos and little kid photos and baby photos, if your wife loses them, you will lose your head. At least that's what she, my wife told me. While we're on the topic of hard drives, Richard asks a question. Asks a question about storage. Says, "Hi guys, I have a question for you, and I hope you can advise me on the best course of action. I'm getting ready to install Ubuntu 13.04 on my main PC, which currently has a one terabyte hard drive in it, but I have an additional one terabyte drive and a 500 gig drive that I have lying around, and I want to add them to the system at the same time. What would be the best way to do this so I can use the drives?" Coming from a Windows background, I can do this easily in Windows, but have read several several articles on how to do it in Linux, but each one was different and has left me a trifle confused. The only thing I don't want to do is use a RAID, as the one terabyte drives are not identical. The only thing I need to do is be able to access them drives uh, as normal. Um, one other thing, whilst, well, hang on, we'll, before we get to the one other thing, uh, Richard, it shouldn't be that difficult. Just plug them in. The system will recognize them. You'll see different mount points it shouldn't be any more complicated than that. Yeah. Yeah. It, once you mount them, once the system gives it a mount point, then it works like in Windows where you have drive letters. It's the same idea. But instead, you might have to change the name so they are la- labeled something, you know, like uh, the photo drive or music to yeah. movie drive. Um, It'll come up like th- SDA 1 and 2 or SDB 1 and 2. That's how they'll be labeled in Linux. Or... Well, it, it'll either be that way or when you're looking through the file manager, whatever the label the disk had in Windows should come through. So if it was labeled local disk, it'll be local disk. Um, but your partitioning programs that are built into most of the Linux installs will allow you to rename it to whatever you want it to be, change the file format. So if you want it to be NTFS so you could share it out, or not share it out, but access it from a dual boot, you'd be able to do that. Uh, but 
yeah, it's not hard. It, it'll take a couple seconds and you'll be fine. Yeah, so the, when the, the trouble with reading tutorials on the internet is they're usually written by experts for experts and it's talking about squeezing every last drop of performance and space out of them. But just as a regular everyday Linux user, plug those things in and let the system handle it. It will do a fine job of it. Yeah, yep. I mean, it's really, it's just as simple as doing it in Windows and it's just as complicated as doing it in Windows because you can go into Windows and do some advanced settings and change things too. So, but you know, Windows is good about plugging and playing drives. Uh, Linux is very good about plugging and playing drives and they're both good about letting you get in and really muck stuff up. <laughs> All right, and then he goes on to his one other thing. Whilst I think of it, given the machine specs, uh, an i7-3773 gigahertz and a 32 gigs of RAM and an NVIDIA GTX 650, do I need a swap partition? I do run up to five VMs in VirtualBox uh, on it at a time, so I don't know if that will be a factor or not. Keep up the good work. Hope the show continues to grow. Kind regards, Richard. Um you, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know my stance on swap partitions. I'm not a fan of them. I don't think you need them. Until you said that you're going to run five VMs at once, yeah, you need a swap partition. Yeah, and actually, I would put uh, the VMs, their things, on a different hard drive than your regular, than your system. You know, have those data files stored on a different hard drive than your primary system per, uh, disk as well. That would be some advice I would throw in there. The kind of thrashing you're going to be doing uh, running those VMs. Now, again, VirtualBox, uh, what you specifically said you're using, is not awesome about memory management. It just kind of reserves a chunk of RAM and says, that's yours. Uh, but, you know, you got 32 gigs of RAM. You're probably giving them each two to four gigs of RAM. But what it will do is, is say you give it four, it'll just set aside four and say, that's it. Nobody can use that but you. And if you're doing that five times, that's 20 gigs of RAM. You're going to start needing some swap if you got all of those running at once. So yep. set up, uh, you know, uh, 64 gigs of swap is more than enough. And again, I ordinarily don't uh, advocate for swap, but in your situation, I would say you're going to need it. Yeah, and I would say actually split that swap file, your 64 gigs, split it up between the two different terabyte drives so you don't feel that 64 gigs as hard. That also then gives the system a little bit more um, I.O., you know, in, in writing to the, you know, back and forth from swap because you have multiple drives that it'd be writing the swap file to. You'd be able to get a little bit better performance by putting half of it on one, on one drive and half of it on the other. And like Seth said, make sure to put those VMs on a different drive so that way your data, your while you're browsing the web and doing whatever you need to do, those other drives can be doing the job for VirtualBox for, so they don't uh, suck up your bandwidth for your day-to-day -day use. All right. Yeah. Now, Joe writes in and asks a Boris Box question. That episode has been one of our most asked about episodes. Uh, that was 39. We're on 92 now. So 60 weeks later, a year and a half later, uh, people are still asking about the Boris Box uh, he says, Mark and crew, I had another situation where I wonder if a Boris box would have helped. A couple of neighborhood kids were at our house playing with my kids. My son asked if he and his friends could play games on our iPod Touch and the Nintendo DS. Thinking nothing of it, I told my five-year-old son, go ahead. Fast forward for an hour later, and my wife finds the 12-year-old neighbor kid was using her iPod to view, quote, inappropriate adult content in the App Store. 
Would a Boris box stop the delivery of adult content if it's accessed through a secondary source within a trusted source like the App Store? I haven't had time uh, had to think of these things. Um, my kids are five and four, and the worst thing they find on the internet are advertisements for toys on the websites uh, that host kids' games they play. Hot Wheels, Fisher Price are often the big offenders, while PBS.com, PBSKids.com, and Nick Jr. seem to be ad free. And then he's got a PS we'll uh, get to in a minute. Um, yes and no. The Boris box itself isn't going to help you. But if you had some sort of content filter running on that Boris box, I use IP Cop. Um, it, it would do that. Now, you said that it's uh, an untrusted source inside a trusted source. That's not really properly understanding the way that works. The um, App Store is simply a directory that links you to other sites. Um, if, if you want to think of it, uh, iTunes on the, on the device is, is a browser. So you're actually accessing the site for that, whatever it is. And if you have a content filter in place like Dan's guardian, um, or, uh, or open DNS or something like that, then yes, that will, uh, it will pick that up. It's not actually going through the app store. So you're, uh, the way I understood your question is you're thinking I've approved the app store. Does that mean everything coming through the app store is approved. Well, the app store isn't a proxy. It's just a directory. So yes, it would have helped you assuming you'd had some sort of content filter on it, but you wouldn't necessarily have had to have a content filter uh, on your Boris box. You could set up open DNS on your uh, systems and that would have been uh, just as good. Or you could do something like untangle with its content filter. And yes, that would have worked just fine. Yep. That covers it. I would say definitely though, if you want to block an appropriate material, look into a content filter of some sort that fits on the, you know, it covers everybody all at once. So then it, it, that way, if you have the neighborhood kids come over, that's not going to be a problem anymore because you have all of anybody who connects to your Wi-Fi covered, not just the people that you've installed, you know, I don't know, whatever the current peer guardian type, uh, peer guardians are the wrong word, but yeah. Do it that way. Do it. Do it on the router side, so that way anybody is covered by it. It, exactly. it leads, you know, that way you don't have any issues at all. You want to stop things at the gateway whenever possible. And of course, Chris comes from. Uh, actually, all three of us have come from a uh, an education IT uh, background where that's a big deal. You know, it's not only a good idea; it's the federal mandate that you uh, have some sort of gateway filter. Uh, when you're uh, dealing with kids. And we've all had experience with that. And really, at the gateway, at the firewall itself, or the next appliance behind the firewall, is really the only effective way to do that. Yeah. Um, so like I said, I but run... He, Go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, but remember that that may not 100% protect you. You know, kids are really smart about how to get around things. So you will be they will be able to find ways around your blocks, no matter how hard you go to block it. Absolutely. There, there are always proxies out there, uh, yep. but you're a four-year-old and five-year-old. That's not going to be a problem. But when they're 14 and 15, um, that, the best filter is going to be dad standing over their shoulder and watching them while they compute. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then he has a PS. He says, yes, the parents of the 12-year-old were notified and a forced personal apology was delivered within minutes. It was very similar to the time 35 years ago when my mom walked me over to the neighbors to apologize. Back then, my indiscretion was called uh, calling a bigger kid fatso for not sharing his cap gun. No boobs involved. <laughs> As a fat man, uh, I, take, uh, I take umbrage to that. It's amazing how fat is an insult, by the way. You just, yes. it's just a given. 
right? There have been times in my life when somebody struggling for an insult to call me would simply stop it. You fat. I couldn't come up with anything else, but in, in American society, fat people are the last people it's okay to make fun of. Yes. And as a fat guy, that bugs me. So anyway, next one question, uh, next question comes from David and David sort of sparked the whole topic of the show with his question. He says, EDL crew, good day on your latest podcast, which was quite some time ago. This has been sitting in my inbox for a while, um, of which coming from going Linux and the Mintcast variety, I've become a devoted fan for about a month now. Uh, you had a quick discussion on Apple written security exploits, viruses, and how the high and mighty tend to fall prey to their own self superiority. That doesn't sound like us. Really? Would no. we have said something like that? No. I, I don't know where people come up with these <laughs> accusations. He says, I have recently pondered if the recent news of Ubuntu being selected as China's new reference OS and the other Linux adoption news is the death knell for my own sense of Linux superiority. To that end, would you consider doing an entire show devoted to Linux box security? Uh, at the Ubuntu, Linux, Mint, OpenSUSE starter crowd uh, versus the more arch-ass graybeard crowd um, that addresses <laughs> what an average user can do to shore up the security flaws in their own Linux machines, machines including real-time antivirus clients. Again, thank you for your consideration and all that you guys do. I enjoy the show and aim to continue learning and growing in my own Linux knowledge as I routinely tune into the podcast. Sincerely, Kevin, Fort Bragg, U.S. Army, North Carolina. Kevin, thank you for your service. Yep, that would be the yes. first thing I was going to say there. I salute you. That is awesome. And also, thank you for being a listener. So let's dive right into that. Um, we've we've often cautioned about uh, the overly um, grandiose sense of security in Linux. Yes, Linux is built on a foundation of security. Yes, it is difficult to, uh, um, in fact... A Linux machine. It requires some sort of user action, but um, social engineering is growing at a rapid rate. I would say that that Mike, uh, the Mac OS has had the same level of security that Linux has had for a long time now, and people are again beginning to uh, uh, find a way to social engineer those things. The, all the exploits you hear are somebody being tricked into clicking a link, and that could certainly happen on uh, Linux as well. And as you mentioned in your email there, um, the reason it's not a big deal is we're a small target, but we're becoming less of a small target every day. So let's talk a little bit about uh, security and protection and what you really need and what you don't need. Uh, and we'll start with a PC World article um, that uh, was called uh, Security Resolutions for 2013. Obviously not a new article, uh, but it runs it uh, runs some things that uh, are interesting and worth talking about. Um so just at a high level, what are some things that you need to do? Uh, do you really need an antivirus? On Windows? Yes. Yeah. That, that's the only answer. Yes. On Mac? Maybe. On Linux? Not yet. Those are my answers to that question. What do you guys think? Um, I would agree with that. I would say Windows is a profoundly yes. Um, I would probably stand up and scream if it wouldn't hurt everyone's ears. Uh, Mac, I would say, is a, is a subtle yes, because, yeah, you may not be a target at this point, this point in time, but with more and more of the threats becoming uh, multi-platform threats, just 
it wouldn't hurt to have that started in your life so you're familiar with it. Uh, that's how I feel about Macs. Um, most of the time, Mac people are a little more uh, elitist in saying that they're okay. Uh, they're not. They're, they're, they're a target now as well. The Linux people, uh, you're going to have a harder time finding real-time antivirus scannings, and we'll talk to, about the ones I found later. Uh, but I wouldn't say yet, unless you're going to put it on something like your gateway, but be prepared to find something soon. Seth, what are your thoughts? Um, well, it's one of those, I would say yes to all three. You definitely need it in Windows. You definitely need it in Mac. And I think you definitely need it in Linux because Linux had two things that really kind of kept it from needing an antivirus. Number one, it's a small footprint. Why am I going to write something targeting the 1% when the 99% and is dumber and there's so many more of them. And the second thing is the people who have traditionally and historically used Linux were not your average computer user. They liked computers enough that they went out and did research and learned how they operated. And so most, and of course, you know, we talked several weeks ago how we uh, would have fallen victim on a phishing attack. So, you know, something can always get through, but for the most part, historically, the Linux crowd has been more computer savvy than the um, Microsoft crowd or the Apple crowd. But has it becomes, has Ubuntu, you know, kind of leads the way in making Linux more well-known out in the marketplace and more average is not the right word, but it's probably the best word. Average people get into Linux well, the same tricks in social engineering that worked for a huge swaths of the Windows world will start working in Linux. And so, yes, I would think you should. It's a good idea to have some antivirus on your system, regardless of what you use. Having said the guy who doesn't run antivirus on his Linux machine. Right. So, uh, yeah. And that's it's a case of do as we say, not as we do. Um, I don't run. I run a very minimal antivirus even on my Windows thing. I don't right. run. I don't run real-time scanning or anything like that. Um, I, but you're also not leaving your house with your machines, Mark. So yeah. that's another thing. I mean, if, if you're behind your super powerful Boris box, yeah, your your internal machines probably don't need, you know, the super powerful uh, ESET antivirus program or Sophos antivirus program. Or- Nobody needs Sophos. <laughs> just let's just stop that right there. Nobody needs Sophos. If you have Sophos on your machine, time to format, reinstall, do da do da. That's just the easiest (laughs) way. My my point though, well, I would be the same way about Semantic and Norton. I think those guys are. You're installing a virus when you install Semantic and Norton, in my opinion. Same thing with McAfee. But anyway, that's where you need to have something, and yeah. So uh, for me on Windows, when I run anything, I run um, uh, Security Essentials. It's good. It's not awesome. It's good. Um, and I will say I have you know cleaned up a virus or two on machines running Security Essentials. Uh, but those were people who really begged for it. Uh, yeah. If you're even if you're a careful user at all, 
it's good enough. It's free. It stays out of the way. That's what I like. So uh, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, virus, antivirus on Linux. One of the reasons it's difficult to have a real-time virus scanner on Linux is that um, real-time means it has to touch every file that you open and every process that you run. Linux is designed not to allow that. Uh, yep. The only user who can really do that is root, and you're not really allowed to run things as root. Uh, you have to go through some tricks to do that. Uh, so it's difficult to get a real-time scanner that sits in the system tray and scans everything you do. Uh, in Windows, uh, that's actually getting more difficult uh, to do, and, and uh, uh, manufacturers, uh, programmers, are having to come up with more creative ways to do that. But in Linux, I'm not going to say it's impossible because it's not. It's just really hard to do that. And so any uh, uh, scanner that tries to do that is going to be heavy and obtrusive and buggy. So they yep. don't try it. Well, and that's why you have things like Clam and the Bit and what is that other one? Clam and Bitdefender is that Bit the other Defender, one that runs yeah. as a uh, whenever you call for it right. scan? Yeah, Clam AV. Um, what? Let me tell you what I like about Clam AV. Both in Windows, uh, I've run it on Windows machines too, and and in Linux. And I I assume there's a Mac version. I don't know. It is a virus detector. That's all. It doesn't yep. try to remove them. It just alerts you and says, "Hey, there's an issue here." you need to fix. And the vast majority of the time, in the high 90s percent of the time, when an AV gets you in trouble, it's because it tried to remove it for you. The detection engine is fine, uh, it's, but when they start quarantining files or trying to remove files, no software can be as intelligent as a human at doing that. So that's why I like Clam AV. From the beginning, they said, we're not going to do that. We're just going to detect. Right. And that's the point of AV, uh, of client, at least in my opinion, of what AV should be doing. Um, antivirus should not be trying to clean up after an infection. That's a human's job because a human is going to be better at knowing if that's a false positive after they do the research, big exclamation point, um, because you know heuristics in, in most of those false positives that show up are where they're going to get you in trouble um, because they're not a true detection there. It looks like this, so let's kill it. Right. And that that doesn't work in the real world, so why would it work in the computer world? And uh, what I do is I run Clam AV on my Boris box at the yep. entry point. Now, that doesn't prevent somebody from sticking a USB key in my machine and right. infecting it, but it keeps anything coming in over the Internet uh, from getting there. It just kills those packets and they never get to the computer. Yeah, I'm going to pull up my Boris box really quick and see which version I have running. I don't remember which one it is off the top of my head. All right, any other but thoughts I, about AV before we move on to another subject? No, um, and I would just say that Clam AV is a good one to have even if you like another thing because it doesn't, you know, you you've been told... Don't run two antivirus products on the same machine because they'll, you know, lock up the system. And trust me, that can happen and does a lot. But AVG, I mean, not AVG, Clam won't do that because it's only looking. It's not trying to attack stuff. So it's really good, has a secondary, you know, sometimes when you get a diagnosis and you're sick, you want a second opinion. You know, sometimes when you think your computer's sick, getting a second opinion is good as well. So Clam AV is good for that. And it's a great tool to run on your mother-in-law's computer. 
because right. you can send it, have it send you an email. So it's yeah. it fires off every night, scans every night at midnight. When it finds something, it sends you an email and says, hey, these are the infections I found. I'm not doing anything about it. I just want you to know. And so if you're doing remote family support, that's a great way to set it up. Yep. All right. So moving on to the next topic, passwords. One of the most hotly debated topics since there have been passwords. What makes a good password? Do we really need passwords? Should I change my password every six weeks uh, or should I not? Um, there's a lot of, of misunderstandings about that, and there's a lot of just plain uh, misinformation about that. Uh, so let me just lay out what, what I consider the basics. You want a long password. Um, in every movie that you've ever seen a hacker hacking a password, of safe or a password or whatever you see these these things go by in a line there and then the first digit locks in one the next digit the digit locks in seven the next one locks in b that never happens okay the only way a hacker can know when he's got your password is when he gets the whole password he's got to get every digit right a hundred percent of them before he gets any feedback all right so if you've got a 14-digit password, he's got to enter full 14 digits. He can't work on the first digit and then work on the second digit and then work on the third digit. He's got to enter 14 digits, and he'll either get a yes or no. And he's got to enter another 14 digits and enter a yes or no. So if you've got a good, long password, that's 99% of your protection. Even if yep. it's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, that's, that's a better password than something that's three characters and random with weird weird digits. So let's make all the bank passwords for numeric characters only, and let's call that ultra security. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. And then, out. of course, the more th things you can make them guess, if you can make an, at least one uppercase in there. Now, the only way they're going to get that one uppercase is to try every uppercase character in every spot. And then you put one yeah. special character in there. Again, the only way to find that is do every special character in every spot. Unless they get lucky. Yeah. You and, know, that, and on average, statistically, they're going to get it in half the spot. So if there's a million possible solutions, they'll get it on the 500,000th try. That just statistically, your, your coin's going to come up on heads half of the time. That's the way the numbers work out. So if you get a, a, a password with a billion possible uh combinations statistically they're going to hit it within 500,000 500 million tries um so you want to add complexity whenever possible but really it's all about the length and we've talked before about password haystacking uh you know you take something a simple word that you can remember and then uh pad it with something else and and that's a simple way to do it another great way to construct a password is with a mnemonic like uh silly rabbit tricks are for kids S R comma T A F K exclamation point. That's a good password. Yeah. That's uh, seven characters and it's got an X it's got two punctuation marks in there. You can do a capital for this for the beginning and uh you know, that's a good password. And it's easy to remember. So, you know, pick a pick a phrase that you can remember the 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 chorus to your favorite song and pick the first letter of each word. That's a fine password. Or passwords. the third letter of every word. Right. Passwords no. don't have to be hard to remember. Just don't make it, you know, monkey or banana or your dog's name. Or, or password. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah. 
Whoa, my Google Hangout just crashed, so I don't really know what's going on there. We'll just keep going with the recording, but I don't know what uh, anybody else is going to be seeing. Uh, okay, so moving right along uh, in in the world of passwords, um, longer is better. They don't have to be hard to remember. They just need to be hard to guess. Um, you know, and don't write it. <laughs> don't write it on your um, uh, monitor on a post-it note and stick it on your monitor. That's a bad thing to do. Don't do that. Yeah, putting it on the bottom of the keyboard uh, is also bad. So let's talk about should you change your password? Every enterprise has a rule that you got to change your password. In in Windows, the default is every 42 days, uh, seven weeks, um, or six weeks, excuse me. Changing your passwords, do you have to do that? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit a little bit of security heresy here and say no. Because the only reason to change a password is because it got out. All right? And if it got out today, changing it six weeks from now isn't going to help you. So I don't think I think you change it when you have reason to change it when you suspect it's been compromised. Now there is logic to say that if somebody gets it and you change it regularly, their window of opportunity to damage you is lower, right? I get that, but the the question then is, are they going to sit on it for five of those six weeks and then decide to jump on it? No, they're going to do damage immediately, and you will know. What yeah. do you guys think about that? Go ahead, Chris. I'll let go you ahead, go first. Seth. I'll, I'll let you go, Seth. <laughs> okay. you're, I know you're more the the, the tinfoil advisor. Yeah. yeah. Well, I come from, I mean, there's a lot of wisdom in what you said, but also, you know, you don't know when some old database that got decommissioned but never got turned off, they just quit using it, got hacked. And so you haven't been, you know, it's been two years since that was last access. If you regularly change your password, you're secure from that. And that's where a lot of security breaches come from. And the other reason that I propose changing your password on a regular basis is it helps keep you in the mindset of security. And, you know, passwords are good, but you being aware, you know, it's just like if you were going to go in downtown Dallas or downtown Atlanta at 12 o'clock at night, I would not suggest that you be wearing sunglasses and having your iPod earbuds stuck in your ear cranked up loud. I would tell you to be aware of what's going on around you. And so by keeping the security mindset of changing your passwords just in your background, I think will lead to a more secure browsing session. So now, uh, Seth, having said that, when was the last time you changed all your passwords? See, yeah, don't do what I do, <laughs> do what I say, because, you know, I, I had to change my Yahoo one be back when Yahoo got hacked and we talked about that a while back. But no, some of them I don't change, but I set up pretty good ones. And yeah, I, I don't do it, but I tell other people to because I'm already secure. I'm already have a security mindset. Chris, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are kind of a hybrid of the two. Um, I think that, yes, the length is more important than what you have for gibberish in your password. Uh, but I also think that you do need to change your password, but I don't think you need to do it as very as, as often as Seth might have, have you do it. Um, I like to say change your password on your birthday. Just for the simple fact that if you change your password every day on your birthday, you have a year of using it, and then you know you need to change it. 
that also eliminates some of those decommissioned passwords from databases. You don't end up really forgetting it very often. And if you're using something, say, like LastPass, where you can put a time limit on that password, it's really simple to remember to do it. The other thing, I, the, and that's the basics, what I tell everybody, you know, and use something like LastPass or TrueCrypt or, you know, not, not TrueCrypt, but... Uh, uh, Passwords. Uh, yeah. There's lots of well, them. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a ton of password remembering tools that you can have. Some right, some live in your browser, some live on a thumb drive, some live on as a file that you have in your computer somewhere. But have something that you can say and, and have a big nasty password on that one. But make sure that you have it saved somewhere that if you're going to use LastPass or one of those programs, because like let's say worst case happens, you walk out of your house and you get hit by a bus. You, your your significant other might need access, and if you're a security conscious person, um, like I try to be, most of my passwords are huge, and they do get changed within 12 to 18 months um, on a regular basis, uh, because I told LastPass to remind me to change them every 12 to 18 months. Uh, but the the nice thing is there is when I say I get hit by a bus, I have a get hit by a bus thumb drive you get hit by a bus yeah yeah. but it's true crypted and my wife knows she's the only one that knows the password to the true crypt so she has access to all my stuff even if i do get hit by a bus and she can do whatever she needs to do as me until she doesn't need to be me anymore all i'm gonna say is just stay away from buses everybody gets hit by (laughs) buses you know i try to avoid buses whenever possible um, hit by a bus, throw yeah. someone under the bus. Yeah. Um, you never hear anybody about getting hit by a, a ship <laughs> or or a, a freight liner yeah. or a, a train or a it, DC eleven wide body. You know, you never. Yeah. Hear well, you know, get, get hit by a smart car just doesn't have the same force behind. <laughs> because I mean, what's that going to do? Bounce yeah. off of me? If I got hit by a smart car, the smart car would be the one in trouble. Not it me. sure would be. <laughs> um. Speaking of being thrown under the bus, at a, at a job I used to have, I got thrown under the bus so, so often, I actually became a licensed air brake mechanic. So it was handy. Uh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, moving on from passwords, you mentioned it a couple of times, whole drive encryption. TrueCrypt is an excellent, high-quality, open-source uh, free tool for doing that. Should I encrypt my hard drive? Um, no. Unless you're a drug smuggler, no. There's no reason to. That's that's my stand on it, and I'm sticking to it. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I would say you know 99% of the time, no, you don't need to TrueCrypt your hard drive, the whole thing. Uh, even you know maybe TrueCrypt of a volume or something in your computer that, that a volume would be a small section that you have dedicated to encrypting for say passwords or you know maybe the digital scans of your kids' social security cards or stuff like that 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 you don't want anyone to access. Uh, but unless you have a reason, like maybe you're a, I don't know, a book writer and you don't want your book to be getting out if someone steals your laptop or in, in that type of industry where people would try to steal your stuff to, you know, take over or not take over. But, um, you know, if you're a CEO that has valuable information on your laptop, TrueCrypt it just for the simple fact that if someone does steal it, you don't lose, you don't look like an idiot. Yeah. And if it's a home computer that never goes anywhere, that's even less reason to do it. Uh, TrueCrypt, you know, keeps somebody with physical access to your device 
from getting to it. That's all TrueCrypt is good for. Uh, it won't help you over the internet because once you've gotten into it, once your operating system is booting up, all the same hacks that, that work anywhere else work there. TrueCrypt is only useful for booting the device. So if somebody has physical access to your hard drive, they've stolen your computer or uh, or you've lost it at an airport, they, can, they get to it before you boot up, you've got to enter a password uh, to, that's inc- if to you're, encrypt your drive. That, that's, yeah, that's encrypting the drive. Right. Uh, but if you're doing a volume where it's just a section of the hard drive, then you have to mount it into TrueCrypt in order to open it. Right. So that would be all right. Because but then once if, you've done that, once you've mounted it... You're in, so yep. it's really it's an entry gateway. That's all it is. It's yep. w- once you've got it, you once you've got it booted up and mounted, you it's just as vulnerable as everything else. Right, and, which is why the volumes are so nice because they don't auto mount. You right. actually have to physically do that. So that's that would be what I would do for most of the stuff I do. And I would be very much against uh, encrypting your hard drive because you don't back that thing up. You know you don't back it up like you should. So whenever it breaks down and you come to me, oh, <laughs> I lost all the pictures of my great-great-grandfather and my wedding and all my kids, and they're on this drive, and I need it. Well, you know, if you don't know your password, then there's really nothing I can do to help you. Whereas if it's just a regular thing and it's broke, I can probably fix it, and if I can't, somebody else can. So true crypting is great, but you're really going to screw yourself at some point if you only do some of the security measures. So if you're not going to back up, then I don't think you should worry about TrueCrypt. Just uh, from, yeah. yeah. And if you do back up, your backups are probably going to a service that you got to unencrypt it to go to a service, a backup somewhere, right? Uh, so you know, the, then that becomes a whole different issue. So if you're going to, uh, you know, to Carbonite or Crash Plan or one of those things, um, you can't send that a true crypted blob of data. Well, you can if you like uh, wrap it in a zip file or something, but you can't send them a true crypt volume. It doesn't work that way. So when you when you encrypt your drive, it makes backing up uh, more difficult. It makes maintenance more difficult. Um, there's an overhead hit, not a big one, but there is an overhead hit there because you're you're decrypting every step along the way. It it inserts a shim below the operating system. Um, and I just don't think for the everyday person, it's worth the effort. Uh, it's widely recommended among the tinfoil hat crew, but I just don't think it's point. It's useful in any way. You know, the only reason, like I said earlier, the only reason I ever, my, see, like my laptop's encrypted, my personal laptop, because it goes with me when I go to on-site jobs. And I have client data on there, and I don't want my client data to release, so I have it encrypted just for that factor now granted it's not a big deal i'm not going to be i'm not going to be a target of someone trying to steal my clients but just so my clients feel safer and i like the idea of my clients feeling safer is my client's data is encrypted hey you could probably bill them for that line item too Uh, (laughs) extra security probably could so there you go probably could so again if you're a business owner you're not part of the everyday linux you would need to tune into our business owner linux podcast (laughs) and and we'll tell you all about how to do that and then like unto it should i encrypt my mobile device should i encrypt my phone um no see you never (laughs) um no it's for all the reasons that we said above plus uh encryption is a terrible idea on a phone but essentially what encryption on a phone does is brick it 
Um, you know, it's not to say you can never use it again, but it can never be repaired. If um, if you lose or or damage, let me back up a little bit. What what encrypting a device does is similar to what we talked about TrueCrypt. It's whole drive encryption, and the only way to do that is to totally reformat the flash memory in the phone. So first off, you know, to if you've done anything on it you ever want to keep, encrypting becomes you know that much more painful because you have to to wipe everything off to do it. Um, it adds to the wear and tear of the device, uh, just because flash memory is, is volatile and, and has a limited lifespan and encrypting it, uh, touches every bit a couple of times at least, uh, when you're encrypting it. Um, and then once you get in all, all it takes to get into it is your four digit password on your iPhone anyway. So you're really no more secure than that four digit password. Uh, and I just don't see it as being valuable at all in any way. Yeah, I would I totally second agree with every moment of that. <laughs> Everything you just said, I would second. The only question I would have though is now was BlackBerry the one that came up with the dual phone number in your in the one phone where you could have your work separate from your personal? Yeah, it's in the new BlackBerry 10 OS. I forget what they call it. Yeah, <laughs> they call now, it crap. How are they Mark. doing that? <laughs> I just was curious, has anyone ever seen that or even played with it or even looked at it? Because you know, I'm asking I'm also asking the audience. I just am curious because I, I always wondered if that would be possible to have two phone numbers tied to a single phone and have it ring and, and do everything it's supposed to do. That that just seems like it would have one heck of an overhead to keep both of those completely separate. I don't think I think it's one number. But with with just like two personalities, they call it. I don't think it's two mm. different numbers. Well, then that's something that the mobile phone people need to work on because I think it'd be really I, handy to have two separate phone numbers to a single phone. I have about five phone numbers on my phone. It's called Google Voice. Well, yeah, I know Google Voice, <laughs> but I'm saying actually, like from Verizon or ATT yeah. or somebody, you know, an actual dealer of phone numbers. Uh, that would be fun. I, I could understand how that would be very handy for, say, me, who or has... Or a drug dealer. A are, are you a drug dealer? dealer yes. <laughs> or or a, a any business tech that has multiple phone numbers that they have to keep track of. Uh, I, I would definitely pay for that type of a service on my cell phone. All right. So uh, don't... And just encrypting a drive is a much bigger thing than securing and putting a security uh, you know a swipe if you're on Android or a number uh, a pin number uh, if you're you're on an i device they're totally different things uh, but the way you access an even an encrypted device is by that swipe or that pin so really that becomes the thing and yes you should do that absolutely it's a mild barrier to entry and it actually has turned out to be really good there've been uh, a couple of court cases where police officials tried to compel people to uh, to give up their swipe pattern on Android devices because they couldn't crack it, uh, and the court ruled that they couldn't be compelled to give that up. So score one for the the tinfoil hat there. But um, if you have that option, if you've got an Android device, you can either do the you know just the slide to unlock or uh, a four digit number or uh, a pin. A four digit number has ten thousand possible combinations if you're patient enough you can try every one of those 
A swipe has a lot more combinations because you can go in multiple directions, uh, hit multiple points. You don't have to hit all of them. You can hit different ones. So uh, I think that's a much more secure and faster. It's quicker for me to swipe the pattern than it is to uh, type in the number. So I, I recommend on Android, that's the way you do it. I don't think um, I devices have a similar function. Um but that's that's what I recommend. It's it's really good. It's secure. But I do it just to. Well, one of the reasons I do it is my my work compels me. I have a an app that uh, checks my work email, and one of the rules is if you if you use this app, you have to secure your phone. But I did that even before I started this job. I, I just think it's a good idea to keep the casual browser out of your phone, not to keep the you know the the real miscreant who's out to cause you harm away from it, but the, just the casual browser. Who's going to pick up your phone and say, "Yeah, let's let's see what I can find here." Um, like you, Chris, I, I have other people's data on my phone. You know, it may just be their phone number, uh, but still, that that's other people's data that they have entrusted me with, and I, and I want to keep it out of the the casual snoopers' hands. Exactly, and that's all encryption is going to do anyway. Because if they're going to try and crack it, they're going to try and crack it. And if you're a target of somebody that has enough resources. They're still going to crack open that true vault, no matter how deep your password is or how many layers of encryption you wrap around your file. It, it's just time. Well, and, and yeah, it depends on how much time they're willing. There's a, there's a great article uh, of a couple of years ago now that uh, Brazilian, I think it was, some South American authorities had uh, raided a drug dealer and gotten a bank of hard drives that were encrypted, and they pounded on them for a while. And couldn't figure it out. So they asked the U.S. authorities to do to it. They handed them off to the FBI, who pounded on them for a couple of years and gave them back and said, uh, we can't get it. So I mean, a true crypt or a whole drive encryption with a good password um, is, you know, it's not uncrackable, but it's outside the realm of reasonable amount of time crackable. Exactly. And that's all encryption is good for anyway, is to... It slows people you know, down. Yeah. And the, the, the question is, is... How much time are you, is somebody willing to waste dumping on this drive or volume or phone to open it up? Um, securing your online identity, you know, Facebook, uh, things like that, uh, Twitter. Uh, my only advice there is don't use the same password for all of them and treat them as though they're insecure. And don't use the same password you used on the email account you 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 know so i know some people use the same password you know they have a couple of passwords they use in among other things so if you have say a hotmail account and that your hotmail account is what you use when you create a facebook your password for facebook and hotmail shouldn't be the same because you know if they get yeah. one then they got the other but i treat uh, almost uh, Facebook and Twitter certainly. Well, Twitter is open in general, but I tweet treat Facebook as if it were a postcard. I don't put anything there that I don't want other people to see. Now, like for example, my Google Docs, uh, I consider that a little more secure. I I am trusting them a little more. Maybe I shouldn't, uh, but uh, you know I have things in Google Docs that are sensitive. Like Chris, you were talking about uh, um, social security cards. I scan those and upload them to my Google Drive. Um, so that, so that I have a, a copy in the cloud somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. so that, and you just, just told kinda, the world, I just told the world. That's right. And my password is monkey. Um, so <laughs> yeah. have at it. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the username is Mixel. So that'll be a little more difficult. 
Three to four. Well, that's the other thing you could also add too to your security complexity is if, if it's not an email address, you could put your username as some weird gibberish on top of weird gibberish for your password. Yeah. Then what? Yeah. Don't use, uh, yeah, if security is important to you, yeah, have a username that is not obvious. And if you run anything connected to the web, don't use the disable the admin account, as we talked about recently with the, the WordPress thing. Um, let's see. What else do I want to scan through here? Any theft of apps on your mobile devices? That's just a good idea to do that. It, right, it, and you, you can know. get a couple of good ones that are free. Right. Um, Prey is really good. Prey is good. It works on phones and laptops and tablets and everything. It's great. And it's free and it's easy. I, I don't think it's, you know, it's not necessarily going to get you your device back uh, if it's stolen, but it'll help you if, if you lose it. Really, I think it's more useful if it's lost than if it's stolen. Uh, I, I think I'm pretty well done with that. Any other comments there? Uh, oh, as always, backup, backup, backup. Um, secure first, backup second, or maybe it's the other way around. Backup I would first, go the other secure way. second. I would go the other way until you know your your secure your backup is valid. Then I would go to back or encrypt first, backup second. But always make sure your your backup is going to be valid, you know, like a crash plan or any of those other places. Make sure that's valid before you start monkeying with any anything like that. Okay. Uh, also, one other uh, thing about uh, encrypting devices, you don't get any benefit from in, from uh, compression. From you know, you you can't you don't get any drive space savings or anything like that you can't you know a, a, comp- a zip a compressed file a, a, an encrypted file won't zip um, because th- there aren't any repeated chains or there are very few repeated chains and that's how encryption works it looks for things that are repeated and, and takes them out so another reason not to do that that just popped into my head um, okay I think I'm done any other comments guys no we uh, beat that horse <laughs> really well. We beat it, shot it, and throw it down yeah. the river. So, I, my overall uh, point of view here is just have some common sense when it comes to security. Don't don't run scared. I think a lot of people are just afraid uh, of the the computer in general. They'll say the computer is smarter than I am. The computer is literally a box of rocks. It's silicone. It is literally a box of rocks. It's not smarter than you are. Don't be afraid of it. Um, and don't be, you know, I don't think that you should live your um, real life thinking you're going to get raped, stabbed, and murdered every time you step out your front door. I don't think you should live your digital life thinking you're going to get hacked every time you connect to the internet. Um, but just have some common sense. You know, I, I lock my and doors have, at night. And, yeah. and you know, the same thing is true on your computer. You just do the basic, simple things that you know you need to do. And just make sure that you have that basic things taken care of. Um, I've mentioned LastPass and KeePass earlier. Th- those are really good programs. They've been beat on for a long time, and they're they're safe. So, you know, those are things that can help you keep your digital life safe. Um, I, I've, I'm a paying customer. Um, there's no we're not getting ad revenue off of these guys, but I wholeheartedly. Yes. Trust LastPass, yeah, yet. <laughs> but I'm I'm a paid customer before, so and I will continue to pay every year because I like the service I get from LastPass. Um, the fact that I can time limit my passwords is lovely, no. uh, but 
I like having access to all my passwords wherever I have my tablet with me and my phone. Seth, give me a three-sentence summary of your security advice. Don't be stupid. Uh, <laughs> no, That was three words. You don't even need three sentences. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, you know, you can't be... The only way you can be totally secure is to not ever do anything, and that is no way to live life. So be aware of what's going on. You don't really need to be an expert per se, but you need to know some baseline security guidelines um, more than you need the stuff because, you know, Mac's greatest, and it's still out there, you know, is that, you know, ooh, you have a Mac. You don't need to worry about security. Feel free to do any stupid, idiotic thing you want to. Um, you know, that's just, that. that's that's as dumb as not ever doing anything at all. So I'm more be security conscious and whatever tools help you do that is what you should use. Excellent. Uh, thanks yep. for the feedback, uh, audience. That was great. We had a, a big chunk of uh, listener feedback. There's still a few more things in my inbox. I didn't uh, use them all. Uh, keep them coming. Uh, I would love to to be able to devote a big chunk of the show every week to answering your questions and reading your compliments. Um, I never get tired of you telling me how awesome I am. <laughs> <laughs> we all don't. So send them, send them, send them. And the way you can do that is go to elementop.com and uh, click the uh, contact us button at the top of the page or you can send us an email to edl at elementop.com or you can give us a call at 559-IMOP anywhere inside the continental North American chunk of land mass uh, and, and that will work. So uh, do so, let us know what you think, ask your questions, make your comments. Um, uh, if you want us to announce your your event, we've got a couple people do that. We're happy to do that, uh, you know, within reason. Um, I'm not going to announce the uh, Jenkins family reunion in South Tello, Texas. Sorry. Jenkins Unless you're it. planning it using Linux and open source products, <laughs> then, you know, we might do it then. So, so uh, let us hear from you. And uh, as always, thanks for being a listener. Chris, do we have a uh, command line tip this week? I was looking for one, and I have a couple that I'm working on because they're they're not just command line tips; they're actual usage for. So I don't have one tonight, but I should have a, a good system set up next week because I I have a couple of things I'm working on. In other words, the dog ate my homework, teacher. Something like that. Seth, what is your weird link of the week? You know, I thought about uh, the show topic. And I went all out, and I found a great one. I don't know if you've ever heard of... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just clicked the link. Infowars.com for all, and I do mean all, of your conspiracy theories. I mean, I'm a tinfoil hat advisor guy, and I laugh at this stuff. But if you're into Planet Infowars, they have a... Find and meet people that share a passion for liberty and freedom and are ready to start a relationship, get featured, and you can even click on a photo bucket link that will take you to dating freedom lovers. And I got to admit, some of the girls look Do it now high. before the black helicopters attack. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> if you're if you're a freedom loving, tinfoil hat wearing, 
conspiracy theory. Um, you know, Obama is half of the Antichrist and the Pope is the other half. And they're, the fluoride is meant to control our brains and black helicopters fly around at night and you can't hear them. Then this is your site. Go here and find a mate. Uh, dating freedom lovers the <laughs> link will be in the show notes guys i looked and i thought this was perfect for this episode how did i do mark is this it, good that's, that's awesome good. because the odds are um none of those people can get a date either so it's really going to be awesome um <laughs> sorry. um and i call bs on all of these pictures these people are all too good looking they're all fake photos um no, I'm kidding. Uh, geeks can be good looking too. Just usually isn't the case. Uh, but yeah, if you're a, if you're a um, a, a new world order fearer, then Infowars has you covered. Awesome, Seth. That's funny and might actually be useful all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So um, you know, I I hope I didn't offend you, but um, I just I laughed when I found it. And I just wanted to share it to the world. Um, I've been thinking of starting an Element OP dating service where we have uh, Linux lovers unite. Um, yeah, no. What if they already have one? <laughs> I'm sure there is. Um, a great place to meet people, though, is in our forums over at elementop.com. Go in there and make yourself known. Write a post, uh, read a post, share a post, give a post, take a post when you were a post post yeah um (laughs) thanks for being with us uh everybody for listening to uh an hour and 40 minutes of rambling chris seth as always uh you have been the consummate professionals or at least the best i could find for what i'm paying you and uh we appreciate you being here and i'm gonna call it time of death 9 41 p.m eastern time that ends this episode of everyday Winner.